Hello and welcome. I'm Jennifer March, and this is not your mother's story time. This week, we bring you two stories by Sherwood Anderson, The New Englander, and War. Anderson was considered a writer's writer. His style was naturalism. Anderson invites the reader into his process as a writer, in which he unfolds the meticulously developed characters' views of the world. He influenced writers such as Willa Cather, Henry James, and William Faulkner. Anderson and Ernest Hemingway became great friends until Hemingway felt the need to sabotage the relationship. He wrote a parody of Anderson's one and only best-selling novel, which Anderson took as a great insult. And now, The New Englander by Sherwood Anderson. Her name was Elsie Leander, and her girlhood was spent on her father's farm in Vermont. For several generations, the Leanders had all lived on the same farm and had all married thin women, and so she was thin. The farm lay in the shadow of a mountain, and the soil was not very rich. From the beginning and for several generations, there had been a great many sons and few daughters in the family. The sons had gone west, or to New York City, and the daughters had stayed at home and thought such thoughts as come to New England women who see the sons of their father's neighbors slipping away, one by one, into the west. Her father's house was a small white frame affair, and when you went out at the back door, past a small barn and chicken house, you got into a path that ran up the side of a hill and into an orchard. The trees were all old and gnarled. At the back of the orchard, the hill dropped away, and bare rocks showed. Inside the fence, a large gray rock stuck high up out of the ground. As Elsie sat with her back to the rock, with a mangled hillside at her feet, she could see several large mountains, apparently but a short distance away, and between herself and the mountains lay many little fields surrounded by neatly built stone walls. Everywhere rocks appeared. Large ones, too heavy to be moved, stuck out of the ground in the center of the fields. The fields were like cups filled with a green liquid that turned gray in the fall and white in the winter. The mountains, far off but apparently near at hand, were like giants, ready at any moment to reach out their hands and take the cups one by one and drink off the green liquid. The large rocks in the field were like the thumbs of the giants. Elsie had three brothers, born before her, but they had all gone away. Two of them had gone to live with her uncle in the West, and her oldest brother had gone to New York City, where he had married and prospered. All through his youth and manhood, her father had worked hard and had lived a hard life, but his son in New York City had begun to send money home, and after that things went better. He still worked every day about the barn or in the fields, but he did not worry about the future. Elsie's mother did housework in the mornings and in the afternoons sat in a rocking chair in her tiny living room and thought of her sons while she crocheted table covers and tidies for the backs of chairs. She was a silent woman, very thin and with very thin bony hands. She did not ease herself into a rocking chair but sat down and got up suddenly and when she crocheted her back was as straight as the back of a drill sergeant. The mother rarely spoke to the daughter. 
sometimes in the afternoons as the young woman went up the hillside to her place by the rock at the back of the orchard. Her father came out of the barn and stopped her. He put a hand on her shoulder and asked her where she was going. To the rock, she said, and her father laughed. His laughter was like the creaking of a rusty door barn hinge, and the hand he had laid on her shoulders was thin like her own hands and like her mother's hands. The father went into the barn, shaking his head. She's like her mother. She's herself like a rock, he thought. At the head of the path that led from the house to the orchard, there was a great cluster of bayberry bushes. The New England farmer came out of his barn to watch his daughter go along the path, but she had disappeared behind the bushes. He looked away past his house to the fields and to the mountains in the distance. He also saw the green cup-like fields and the grim mountains. There was an almost imperceptible tightening of the muscles of his half-worn-out old body. For a long time he stood in silence, and then, knowing from long experience the dangers of having thoughts, he went back into the barn and busied himself with the mending of an agricultural tool that had been mended many times before. The son of the Leanders who went to live in New York City was the father of one son, a thin, sensitive boy, who looked like Elsie. The son died when he was twenty-three years old, and some years later the father died and left his money to the old people on the New England farm. The two Leanders who had gone west had lived there with their father's brother, a farmer, until they grew into manhood. Then Will, the younger, got a job on a railroad. He was killed one winter morning. It was a cold, snowy day, and when the freight train he was in charge of as conductor left the city of Des Moines, he started to run over the tops of the cars. His feet slipped, and he shot down into space. That was the end of him. Of the new generation, there was only Elsie and her brother Tom, whom she had never seen, left alive. Her father and mother talked of going west to Tom for two years before they came to a decision— then it took another year to dispose of the farm and make preparations. During the whole time, Elsie did not think much about the change about to take place in her life. The trip west on the railroad train jolted Elsie out of herself. In spite of her detached attitude toward life, she became excited. Her mother sat up very straight and stiff in the seat in the sleeping car, and her father walked up and down in the aisle. After a night when the younger of the two women did not sleep but lay awake with red burning cheeks and with her thin fingers incessantly picking at the bedclothes in her berth while the train went through towns and cities, crawled up the sides of the hills and fell down into forest-clad valleys, she got up and dressed to sit all day looking at a new kind of land. The train ran for a day and through another sleepless night in a flatland where every field was as large as a farm in her own country. Towns appeared and disappeared in a continual procession. The whole land was unlike anything she had ever known, that she began to feel unlike herself. In the valley where she was born, and where she had lived all her days, everything had an air of finality. Nothing could be changed. The tiny fields were chained to the earth. They were fixed in their places, and surrounded by aged stone walls. The fields, like the mountains that looked down at them, were as unchangeable as the passing days. 
She had a feeling they had always been so, would always be so. Elsie sat like her mother, upright in the car seat, and with a back like the back of a drill sergeant. The train ran swiftly along through Ohio and Indiana. Her thin hands, like her mother's hands, were crossed and locked. One passing casually through the car might have thought both women prisoners, handcuffed and bound to their seats. Night came on, and she again got into her berth. Again she lay awake, and her thin cheeks became flushed. But she thought new thoughts. Her hands were no longer gripped together, and she did not pick at the bedclothes. Twice during the night she stretched herself and yawned, a thing she had never in her life done before. The train stopped at a town on the prairies, and as there was something the matter with one of the wheels of the car in which she lay, the trainsmen came with flaming torches to tinker it. There was a great pounding and shouting. When the train went on its way, she wanted to get out of her berth and run up and down in the aisle of the car. The fancy had come to her that the men tinkering with the car were new men out of the new land who, with strong hammers, had broken away the doors of her prison. They had destroyed forever the program she had made for her life. Elsie was filled with joy at the thought that the train was still going on into the West. She wanted to go on forever, in a straight line into the unknown. She fancied herself no longer on a train, and imagined she had become a winged thing flying through space. Her long years of sitting alone by the rock on the New England farm had got her into the habit of expressing her thoughts aloud. Her thin voice broke the silence that lay over the sleeping car, and her father and mother, both also lying awake, sat up in their berth to listen. Tom Leander, the only living male representative of the new generation of Leanders, was a loosely built man of forty inclined to corpulency. At twenty he had married the daughter of a neighboring farmer, and when his wife inherited some money, she and Tom moved into the town of Apple Junction in Iowa where Tom opened a grocery store. The venture prospered, as did Tom's matrimonial venture. When his brother died in New York City and his father, mother, and sister decided to come west, Tom was already the father of a daughter and four sons. On the prairies north of town and in the midst of a vast, level stretch of cornfields, there was a partly completed brick house that had belonged to a rich farmer named Russell, who had begun to build the house, intending to make it the most magnificent place in the county. But when it was almost completed, he had found himself without money and heavily in debt. The farm, consisting of several hundred acres of cornland, had been split into three farms and sold. No one wanted the huge unfinished brick house. For years it stood vacant, its windows staring out over the fields that had been planted almost up to the door. In buying the Russell house, Tom was moved by two motives. He had a notion that in New England the Leanders had been rather magnificent people. His memory of his father's place in Vermont Valley was shadowy, but in speaking of it to his wife, he became very definite. We had good blood in us, we Leanders, he said, straightening his shoulders. We lived in a big house. We were important people. Wanting his father and mother to feel at home in their new place, Tom had also another motive. He was not a very energetic man, and although he had done well enough as keeper of a grocery, his success was largely due to the boundless energy of his wife. She did not pay much attention to her household, 
and her children, like little animals, had to take care of themselves. But in any matter concerning the store, her word was law. To have his father the owner of the Russell place, Tom felt would establish him as a man of consequence in the eyes of his neighbors. I can tell you what, they're used to a big house, he said to his wife. I tell you what, my people are used to living in style. The exaltation that had come over Elsie on the train wore away at the presence of the gray, empty Iowa fields, but something of the effect of it remained with her for months. In the big brick house, life went on much as it had in the tiny New England house where she had always lived. The Leanders installed themselves in three or four rooms on the ground floor. After a few weeks, the furniture that had been shipped by freight arrived and was hauled out from town in one of Tom's grocery wagons. There were three or four acres of ground covered with great piles of boards the unsuccessful farmer had intended to use in the building of stables. Tom sent men to haul the boards away, and Elsie's father prepared to plant a garden. They had come west in April, and as soon as they were installed in the house, plowing and planting began in the fields nearby. The habit of a lifetime returned to the daughter of the house. In the new place, there was no gnarled orchard surrounded by a half-ruined stone fence. All of the fences in all of the fields that stretched away out of sight to the north, south, east, and west were made of wire and looked like spiderwebs against the blackness of the ground when it had been freshly plowed. There was, however, the house itself. It was like an island rising out of the sea. In an odd way, the house, although it was less than ten years old, was very old. Its unnecessary bigness represented an odd impulse in men. Elsie felt that. At the east side, there was a door leading to a stairway that ran into the upper part of the house that was kept locked. Two or three stone steps led up to it. Elsie could sit on the top step with her back against the door and gaze into the distance without being disturbed. Almost at her feet began the fields that seemed to go on and on forever. The fields were like the waters of a sea. Men came to plow and plant. Giant horses moved in a procession across the prairies. A young man who drove six horses came directly toward her. She was fascinated. The breasts of the horses as they came forward with bowed heads seemed like the breasts of giants. The soft spring air that lay over the fields was also like a sea. The horses were giants walking on the floor of a sea. With their breasts, they pushed the waters of the sea before them. They were pushing the waters out of the basin of the sea. The young man who drove them also was a giant. Elsie pressed her body against the closed door at the top of the steps. In the garden back of the house, she could hear her father at work. He was raking dry masses of weeds off the ground, preparatory to spading it for a family garden. He had always worked in a tiny, confined space and would do the same thing here. In this vast, open place, he would work with small tools, doing little things with infinite care, raising little vegetables. In the house, her mother would crochet little tidies. She herself would be small. She would press her body against the door of the house, try to get herself out of sight. Only the feeling that sometimes took possession of her and that did not form itself into a thought would be large. The six horses turned at the fence, and the outside horse got entangled in the traces. The driver swore vigorously. 
Then he turned and started at the pale New Englander, and with another oath, pulled the heads of the horses about and drove away into the distance. The field in which he was plowing contained two hundred acres. Elsie did not wait for him to return, but went into the house and sat with arms folded in a room. The house, she thought, was a floating ship in a sea on the floor of which giants went up and down. May came, and then June. In the great fields, work was always going on, and Elsie became somewhat used to the sight of the young man in the field that came down to the steps. Sometimes when he drove his horses down to the wire fence, he smiled and nodded. In the month of August, when it is very hot, the corn in Iowa fields grows until the cornstalks resemble young trees. The cornfields become forests. The time for cultivating of the corn has passed, and weeds grow thick between the corn rows. The men with their giant horses have gone away. Over the immense fields, silence broods. When the time of the laying by of the crop came that first summer after Elsie's arrival in the West, her mind, partially awakened by the strangeness of the railroad trip, awakened again. She did not feel like a staid, thin woman with a back like the back of a drill sergeant, but like something new, and as strange as the new land into which she had come to live. For a time she did not know what was the matter. In the field the corn had grown so high that she could not see into the distance. The corn was like a wall, and the little bare spot of land on which her father's house stood was like a house built behind the walls of a prison. For a time she was depressed, thinking that she had come west into a wide-open country, only to find herself locked up more closely than ever. An impulse came to her. She arose, and going down three or four steps, seated herself almost on a level with the ground. Immediately she got a sense of relief. She could not see over the corn, but she could see under it. The corn had long, wide leaves that met over the rows. The rows became long tunnels, running away into infinity. Out of the black ground grew weeds that made a soft carpet of green. From above, light sifted down. The corn rows were mysteriously beautiful. They were warm passageways running out into life. She got up from the steps and, walking timidly to the wire fence that separated her from the field, put her hand between the wires and took hold of one of the cornstalks. For some reason, after she had touched the strong young stalk and had held it for a moment firmly in her hand, she grew afraid. Running quickly back to the steps, she sat down and covered her face with her hands. Her body trembled. She tried to imagine herself crawling through the fence and wandering along one of the passageways. The thought of trying the experiment fascinated, but at the same time terrified. She got quickly up and went into the house. One Saturday night in August, Elsie found herself unable to sleep. Thoughts, more definite than she had ever known before, came into her mind. It was a quiet, hot night, and her bed stood near a window. Her room was the only one the Leanders occupied on the second floor of the house. At midnight, a little breeze came up from the south, and when she sat up in bed, the floor of corn tassels lying below her line of sight looked in the moonlight like the face of a sea just stirred by a gentle breeze. A murmuring began in the corn, 
and murmuring thoughts and memories awoke in her mind. The long, wide, succulent leaves had begun to dry in the intense heat of the August days, and as the wind stirred the corn, they rubbed against each other. A call, far away, as of a thousand voices arose. She imagined the voices were like the voices of children. They were not like her brother Tom's children, noisy, boisterous little animals, but something quite different, tiny little things with large eyes and thin, sensitive hands. One after another they crept into her arms. She became so excited over the fancy that she sat up in bed and, taking a pillow into her arms, held it against her breast. The figure of her cousin, the pale, sensitive young Leander who had lived with his father in New York City and who had died at the age of twenty-three, came into her mind. It was as though the young man had come suddenly into the room. She dropped the pillow and sat, waiting, intense, expectant. Young Harry Leander had come to visit his cousin on the New England farm during the late summer of the year before he died. He had stayed there for a month, and almost every afternoon had gone with Elsie to sit by the rock at the back of the orchard. One afternoon, when they had both been for a long time silent, he began to talk. I want to go live in the West, he said. I want to go live in the West. I want to grow strong and be a man, he repeated. Tears came into his eyes. They got up to return to the house, Elsie walking in silence beside the young man. The moment marked a high spot in her life. A strange, trembling eagerness for something she had not realized in her experience of life had taken possession of her. They went in silence through the orchard, but when they came to the bayberry bush, her cousin stopped in the path and turned to face her. I want you to kiss me, he said eagerly, stepping toward her. A fluttering uncertainty had taken possession of Elsie and had been transmitted to her cousin. After he had made the sudden and unexpected demand and had stepped so close to her that his breath could be felt on her cheek, his own cheeks became scarlet and his hand that had taken her hand trembled. Well, I wish I were strong. I only wish I were strong he said hesitatingly, and turning, walked away along the path toward the house. And in the strange new house, set like an island in its sea of corn, Harry Leander's voice seemed to arise again above the fancied voices of the children that had been coming out of the fields. Elsie got out of bed and walked up and down in the dim light coming through the window. Her body trembled violently. I want you to kiss me the voice said again, and to quiet it and to quiet also the answering voice in herself, she went to kneel by the bed and, taking the pillow into her arms, pressed it against her face. Tom Leander came with his wife and family to visit his father and mother on Sundays. The family appeared at about ten o'clock in the morning. When the wagon turned out of the road that ran past the Russell place, Tom shouted, there was a field between the house and the road, and the wagon could not be seen, as it came along the narrow way through the corn. After Tom had shouted, his daughter Elizabeth, a tall girl of sixteen, jumped out of the wagon. All five children came tearing toward the house through the corn. A series of wild shouts arose on the still morning air. 
The groceryman had brought food from the store. When the horse had been unhitched and put into a shed, he and his wife began to carry packages into the house. The four Leander boys, accompanied by their sister, disappeared into the nearby fields. Three dogs that had trotted out from town under the wagon accompanied the children. Two or three children, and occasionally a young man from a neighboring farm, had come to join in the fun. Elsie's sister-in-law dismissed them all with a wave of her hand. With a wave of her hand, she also brushed Elsie aside. Fires were lighted, and the house reeked with the smell of cooking. Elsie went to sit on the step at the side of the house. The cornfield that had been so quiet rang with shouts and with the barking of dogs. Tom Leander's oldest child, Elizabeth, was like her mother, full of energy. She was thin and tall, like the women of her father's house, but very strong and alive. In secret, she wanted to be a lady, but when she tried, her brothers, led by her father and mother, made fun of her. Don't put on airs, they said. When she got into the country with no one but her brothers and two or three neighboring farm boys, she herself became a boy. With the boys, she went tearing through the fields, following the dogs in pursuit of rabbits. Sometimes a young man came with the children from a nearby farm. Then she did not know what to do with herself. She wanted to walk demurely among the rows through the corn, but was afraid her brothers would laugh, and in desperation outdid the boys in roughness and noisiness. She screamed and shouted and running wildly tore her dress on the wire fences as she scrambled over in pursuit of the dogs. When a rabbit was caught and killed, she rushed in and tore it out of the grasp of the dogs. The blood of the little dying animal dripped on her clothes. She swung it over her head and shouted. The farmhand, who had worked all summer in the field within sight of Elsie, became enamored of the young woman from town. When the groceryman's family appeared on Sunday mornings, he also appeared, but did not come to the house. When the boys and dogs came tearing through the fields, he joined them. He also was self-conscious and did not want the boys to know the purpose of his coming, and when he and Elizabeth found themselves alone together, he became embarrassed. For a moment they walked together in silence. In a wide circle about them, in the forest of the corn, ran the boys and dogs. The young man had something he wanted to say, but when he tried to find words, his tongue became thick and his lips felt hot and dry. Well, he began, let's you and me... Words failed him, and Elizabeth turned and ran after her brothers, and for the rest of the day he could not manage to get her out of their sight. When he went to join them, she became the noisiest member of the party. A frenzy of activity took possession of her. With hair hanging down her back, with clothes torn, and with cheeks and hands scratched and bleeding, she led her brothers in the endless pursuit of the rabbits. The Sunday in August that followed Elsie Leander's sleepless night was hot and cloudy. In the morning she was half ill, and as soon as the visitors from town arrived, she crept away to sit on the step at the side of the house. The children ran away into the fields. An almost overpowering desire to run with them, shouting and playing along the cornrows, took possession of her. She arose and went to the back of the house. Her father was at work in the garden pulling weeds from between rows of vegetables. 
Inside the house, she could hear her sister-in-law moving about. On the front porch, her brother Tom was asleep with his mother beside him. Elsie went back to the step, and then arose and went to where the corn came down to the fence. She climbed awkwardly over and went a little way along one of the rows. Putting out her hand, she touched the firm stalks, and then, becoming afraid, dropped to her knees on the carpet of weeds that covered the ground. For a long time she stayed thus listening to the voices of the children in the distance. An hour slipped away. Presently it was time for dinner, and her sister-in-law came to the back door and shouted. There was an answering whoop from the distance, and the children came running through the fields. They climbed over the fence and ran shouting across her father's garden. Elsie also arose. She was about to attempt to climb back over the fence, unobserved, when she heard a rustling in the corn. Young Elizabeth Leander appeared. Beside her walked the plowman, who but a few months earlier had planted the corn in the field where Elsie now stood. She could see the two people coming slowly along the rows. An understanding had been established between them. The man reached through between the corn stalks and touched the hand of the girl who laughed awkwardly and, running to the fence, climbed quickly over. In her hand, she held the limp body of a rabbit the dogs had killed. The farmhand went away, and when Elizabeth had gone into the house, Elsie climbed over the fence. Her niece stood just within the kitchen door, holding the dead rabbit by one leg. The other leg had been torn away by the dogs. At sight of the New England woman, who seemed to look at her with hard, unsympathetic eyes, she was ashamed and went quickly into the house. She threw the rabbit upon a table in the parlor and then ran out of the room. Its blood ran out on the delicate flowers of a white crocheted table cover that had been made by Elsie's mother. The Sunday dinner, with all the living Leanders gathered about the table, was gone through in a heavy, lumbering silence. When the dinner was over and Tom and his wife had washed the dishes, they went to sit with the older people on the front porch. Presently, they were both asleep. Elsie returned to the step at the side of the house. But when the desire to go again into the cornfields came sweeping over her, she got up and went indoors. The woman of thirty-five tiptoed about the big house like a frightened child. The dead rabbit that lay on the table in the parlor had become cold and stiff. Its blood had dried on the white table cover. She went upstairs but did not go to her own room. A spirit of adventure had hold of her. In the upper part of the house, there were many rooms, and in some of them no glass had been put into the windows. The windows had been boarded up, and narrow streaks of light crept in through the cracks between the boards. Elsie tiptoed up the flight of stairs past the room in which she slept, and opening the doors went into other rooms. Dust lay thick on the floors. In the silence, she could hear her brother snoring as he slept in the chair on the front porch. From what seemed a faraway place, there came the shrill cries of the children. The cries became soft. They were like the cries of unborn children that had called out to her out of the fields on the night before. Into her mind came the intense, silent figure of her mother sitting on the porch beside her son and waiting for the day to wear itself out into night. The thought brought a lump into her throat. She wanted something, 
and did not know what it was. Her own mood frightened her. In a windowless room at the back of the house, one of the boards over a window had been broken, and a bird had flown in and become imprisoned. The presence of the woman frightened the bird. It flew wildly about. Its beating wings stirred up dust that danced in the air. Elsie stood perfectly still, also frightened, not by the presence of the bird, but by the presence of life. Like the bird, she was a prisoner. The thought gripped her. She wanted to go outdoors, where her niece Elizabeth walked with the young plowman through the corn, but was like the bird in the room, a prisoner. She moved restlessly about. The bird flew back and forth across the room. It alighted on the window sill near the place where the board was broken away. She stared into the frightened eyes of the bird, that in turn stared into her eyes. Then the bird flew away, out through the window, and Elsie turned and ran nervously downstairs and out into the yard. She climbed over the wire fence and ran with stooping shoulders along one of the tunnels. Elsie ran into the vastness of the cornfields, filled with but one desire. She wanted to get out of her life and into some new and sweeter life she felt must be hidden away somewhere in the fields. After she had run a long way, she came to a wire fence and crawled over. Her hair became unloosed and fell down over her shoulders. Her cheeks became flushed, and for the moment, she looked like a young girl. When she climbed over the fence, she tore a great hole in the front of her dress. For a moment, her tiny breasts were exposed, and then her hand clutched and held nervously the sides of the tear. In the distance, she could hear the voices of the boys and the barking of the dogs. A summer storm had been threatening for days, and now black clouds had begun to spread themselves over the sky. As she ran nervously forward, stopping to listen and then running on again, the dry corn blades brushed against her shoulders and a fine shower of yellow dust from the corn tassels fell on her hair. A continued crackling noise accompanied her progress. The dust made a golden crown about her head. From the sky overhead, a low rumbling sound like the growling of giant dogs came to her ears. The thought that having at last ventured into the corn she would never escape became fixed in the mind of the running woman. Sharp pains shot through her body. Presently she was compelled to stop and sit on the ground. For a long time she sat with closed eyes. Her dress became soiled. Little insects that lived in the ground under the corn came out of their holes and crawled over her legs. Following some obscure impulse, the tired woman threw herself on her back and lay still with closed eyes. Her fright passed. It was warm and close in the room-like tunnels. The pain in her side went away. She opened her eyes, and between the green corn blades could see patches of a black threatening sky. She did not want to be alarmed, and so closed her eyes again. Her thin hand no longer gripped the tear in her dress, and her little breasts were exposed. They expanded and contracted in spasmodic jerks. She threw her hands back over her head and lay still. It seemed to Elsie that hours passed as she lay thus, quiet and passive under the corn. Deep within her there was a feeling that something was about to happen, something that would lift her out of herself, 
that would tear her away from her past and the past of her people. Her thoughts were not definite. She lay still and waited as she had waited for days and months by the rock at the back of the orchard, on the Vermont farm where she was a girl. A deep, grumbling noise went on in the sky overhead, but the sky and everything she had ever known seemed very far away, not part of herself. After a long silence, when it seemed to her that she had gone out of herself as in a dream, Elsie heard a man's voice calling. Ho, ho, ho! shouted the voice. And after another period of silence, there arose answering voices, and then the sound of bodies crashing through the corn and the excited chatter of children. A dog came running along the row where she lay and stood beside her. His cold nose touched her face, and she sat up. The dog ran away. The Leander boys passed. She could see their bare legs flashing in and out across one of the tunnels. Her brother had become alarmed by the rapid approach of the thunderstorm and wanted to get his family to town. His voice kept calling from the house, and the voices of the children answered from the fields. Elsie sat on the ground with her hands pressed together. An odd feeling of disappointment had possession of her. She arose and walked slowly along in the general direction taken by the children. She came to a fence and crawled over, tearing her dress in a new place. One of her stockings had become unloosed and had slipped down over her shoe top. The long, sharp weeds had scratched her legs so that it was crisscrossed with red lines, but she was not conscious of any pain. The distraught woman followed the children until she came within sight of her father's house, and then stopped and again sat on the ground. There was another loud crash of thunder, and Tom Leander's voice called again, this time half angrily. The name of the girl Elizabeth was shouted in loud masculine tones that rolled and echoed like the thunder along the aisles under the corn. And then Elizabeth came into sight, accompanied by the young plowman. They stopped near Elsie, and the man took the girl into his arms. At the sound of their approach, Elsie had thrown herself face downward on the ground and had twisted herself into a position where she could see without being seen. When their lips met, her tense hands grasped one of the cornstalks. Her lips pressed themselves into the dust. When they had gone on their way, she raised her head. A dusty powder covered her lips. What seemed another long period of silence fell over the fields. The murmuring voices of unborn children, her imagination had created in the whispering fields, became a vast shout. The wind blew harder and harder. The cornstalks were twisted and bent. Elizabeth went thoughtfully out of the field and, climbing the fence, confronted her father. Where have you been? What you been doing? He asked. Don't you think we gotta get out of here? When Elizabeth went toward the house, Elsie followed, creeping on her hands and knees like a little animal, and when she had come within sight of the fence surrounding the house, she sat on the ground and put her hands over her face. Something within her was being twisted and whirled about as the tops of the cornstalks were now being twisted and whirled by the wind. She sat so that she did not look toward the house, and when she opened her eyes, she could again see along the long, mysterious aisles. Her brother with his wife and children went away. 
By turning her head, Elsie could see them driving at a trot out of the yard back of her father's house. With the going of the younger woman, the farmhouse in the midst of the cornfield, rocked by the winds, seemed the most desolate place in the world. Her mother came out at the back door of the house. She ran to the steps where she knew her daughter was in the habit of sitting, and then, in alarm, began to call. It did not occur to Elsie to answer. The voice of the older woman did not seem to have anything to do with herself. It was a thin voice, and was quickly lost in the wind and in the crashing sound that arose out of the fields. With her head turned toward the house, Elsie stared at her mother, who ran wildly around the house, and then went indoors. The back door of the house was shut with a bang. The storm that had been threatening broke with a roar. Broader sheets of water swept over the cornfields. Sheets of water swept over the woman's body. The storm that had for years been gathering in her also broke. Sobs arose out of her throat. She abandoned herself to a storm of grief that was only partially grief. Tears ran out of her eyes and made little furrows through the dust on her face. In the lulls that occasionally came in the storm, she raised her head and heard, through the tangled mass of wet hair that covered her ears, and above the sound of millions of raindrops that alighted on the earthen floor inside the house of corn, the thin voices of her mother and father calling to her out of the Leander house. And now, War by Sherwood Anderson. The story came to me from a woman met on a train. The car was crowded, and I took the seat beside her. There was a man in the offing who belonged with her, a slender, girlish figure of a man, in a heavy brown canvas coat such as teamsters wear in the winter. He moved up and down in the aisle of the car, wanting my place by the woman's side, but I did not know that at the time. The woman had a heavy face and a thick nose. Something had happened to her. She'd been struck a blow or had a fall. Nature could never have made a nose so broad and thick and ugly. She had talked to me in very good English. I suspect now that she was temporarily weary of the man in the brown canvas coat, that she had traveled with him for days, perhaps weeks, and was glad of the chance to spend a few hours in the company of someone else. Everyone knows the feeling of a crowded train in the middle of the night. We ran along through western Iowa and eastern Nebraska. It had rained for days, and the fields were flooded. In the clear night, the moon came out, and the scene outside the car window was strange, and in an odd way, very beautiful. You get the feeling. The black bear trees standing up in clusters as they do out in that country. The pools of water with the moon reflected and running quickly, as it does when the train hurries along. The rattle of the car trucks, the lights in the isolated farmhouses, and occasionally the clustered lights of a town as the train rushed through it into the west. The woman had just come out of war-ridden Poland, had got out of that stricken land with her lover by God knows what miracles of effort. She made me feel the war, that woman did, and she told me the tale that I want to tell you. I do not remember the beginning of our talk, nor can I tell you of how the strangeness of my mood grew to match her mood, 
until the story she told became a part of the mystery of the still night outside the car window, and very pregnant with meaning to me. There was a company of Polish refugees moving along a road in Poland in charge of a German. The German was a man of perhaps fifty, with a beard. As I got him, he was much such a man as might be professor of foreign languages in a college in our country, say, in Des Moines, Iowa, or Springfield, Ohio. He would be sturdy and strong of body, and given to the eating of rather rank foods, as such men are. Also, he would be a fellow of books, and in his thinking inclined toward the ranker philosophies. He was dragged into the war because he was a German, and he had steeped his soul in the German philosophy of might. Faintly, I fancy, there was another notion in his head that kept bothering him, and so to serve his government with a whole heart, he read books that would reestablish his feeling for the strong, terrible thing for which he fought. Because he was past fifty, he was not on the battle line, but was in charge of the refugees, taking them out of their destroyed village to a camp near a railroad where they could be fed. The refugees were peasants, all except the woman in the American train with me, her lover and her mother, an old woman of sixty-five. They had been small landowners, and the others in their party had worked on their estate. Along a country road in Poland went this party, in charge of the German who tramped heavily along, urging them forward. He was brutal in his insistence, and the old woman of sixty-five, who was a kind of leader of the refugees, was almost equally brutal in her constant refusal to go forward. In the rainy night she stopped in the muddy road and her party gathered about her. Like a stubborn horse, she shook her head and muttered Polish words. I want to be let alone. That's what I want. All I want in the world is to be let alone, she said over and over. And then the German came up and, putting his hand on her back, pushed her along, so that their progress through the dismal night was a constant repetition of the stopping, her muttering words, and his pushing. They hated each other with wholehearted hatred, that old Polish woman and the German. The party came to a clump of trees on the bank of a shallow stream, and the German took hold of the old woman's arm and dragged her through the stream, while the others followed. Over and over she said the words, I want to be let alone. All I want in this world is to be let alone. In the clump of trees the German started a fire. With incredible efficiency he had it blazing high in a few minutes, taking the matches and even some bits of dry wood from a little rubber-lined pouch carried in his inside coat pocket. Then he got out tobacco, and sitting down on the protruding root of a tree, smoked, and stared at the refugees clustered about the old woman on the opposite side of the fire. The German went to sleep. That was what started his trouble. He slept for an hour, and when he awoke, the refugees were gone. You can imagine him jumping up and tramping heavily back through the shallow stream and along the muddy road to gather his party together again. He would be very angry through and through, but he would not be alarmed. It was only a matter, he knew, of going far enough back along the road as one goes back along a road for strayed cattle. And then, when the German came up to the party, he and the old woman began to fight. She stopped muttering the words about being let alone and sprang at him. One of her old hands gripped his beard, and the other buried itself in the thick skin of his neck. The struggle in the road lasted a long time. The German was tired, 
and not as strong as he looked, and there was that faint thing in him that kept him from hitting the old woman with his fist. He took hold of her thin shoulders and pushed while she pulled. The struggle was like a man trying to lift himself by his bootstraps. The two fought and were full of determination that will not stop fighting, but they were not very strong physically. And so their two souls began to struggle. The woman in the train made me understand that quite clearly, although it may be difficult to get the sense of it over to you. I had the night and the mystery of the moving train to help me. It was a physical thing, the fight of the two souls in the dim light of the rainy night on that deserted, muddy road. The air was full of the struggle, and the refugees gathered about and stood shivering. They shivered with cold and weariness, of course, but also with something else. In the air, everywhere about them, they could feel the vague something going on. The woman said that she would gladly have given her life to have stopped it, or to have someone strike a light, and that her man felt the same way. It was like two winds struggling, she said, like a soft, yielding cloud become hard and trying vainly to push another cloud out of the sky. Then the struggling ended, and the old woman and the German fell down exhausted in the road. The refugees gathered about and waited. They thought something more was going to happen, knew, in fact, something more would happen. The feeling they had persisted, you see, and they huddled together and perhaps whimpered a little. What happened is the whole point of the story. The woman in the train explained it very clearly. She said that the two souls, after struggling, went back into the two bodies, but that the soul of the old woman went into the body of the German and the soul of the German into the body of the old woman, and that, of course, everything was quite simple. The German sat down by the road and began shaking his head and saying he wanted to be let alone, declared that all he wanted in the world was to be let alone, and the Polish woman took papers out of his pocket and began driving her companions back along the road, driving them harshly and brutally along, and when they grew weary, pushing them with her hands. There was more of the story after that. The woman's lover, who had been a schoolteacher, took the papers and got out of the country, taking his sweetheart with him. But my mind has forgotten the details. I only remember the German sitting by the road and muttering that he wanted to be let alone, and the old tired mother in Poland saying the harsh words and forcing her weary companions to march through the night back into their own country. And those are our stories for this evening. I hope you enjoyed The New Englander and War by Sherwood Anderson. Thank you for listening. I'm Jennifer March, and this is not your mother's story time.